The following message is brought to you by Cashin First Baptist Church and Pastor Greg Davis in Cashin, Oklahoma. For more information about Cashin FBC, please visit CashinFBC.org. If you have your Bible, would you go to John chapter 8? If you're a guest with us today, and I assume there are some guests here today, just simply for the fact that we had baptisms today, so we always usually have guests and we Thank you for your presence here for that special service. I want to give you a little bit of a heads up of where we've been studying in the last several months is about the local church. Uh, We have a a church, what we call the universal church, church throughout all time and and believers all over the world, but we also have local churches. And the question is, what is the priority of the local church? Uh, Sometimes we can lose our way in what the priority of the local church is to be, and what are we building our churches upon? And that's the questions that we've been asking over the last several weeks. And so I want to take you over to John chapter 8, and then as we go through this text of Scripture, I think you'll understand why we're here as we talk about the local church. John chapter 8, and you're going to take your eyes down there to verse 56. And then we'll read through 59. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words will be on the screen. Notice this is Jesus, if you have a red letter edition Bible, speaking to the Jews. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple. Would you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer this morning? Father God, we come to you this morning and we lift up our prayers and our petitions to you. And God, I pray that you would guide us with your Holy Spirit, with our thoughts and our words and our actions, because God, we realize apart from Christ, we can do absolutely nothing. And so Lord, I pray we would be convinced of that truth today. And God, I pray that you would uh, open our eyes and hearts and ears today to listen to you and hear what you have to say to us from your word. God, we thank you for this and praise you for this in Jesus name. Amen. My goal today is no different than the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John. And you'll see at the end of his Gospel that he had a clear agenda for which he was writing. So many people think that the Apostles were hiding their agenda. They were not hiding their agenda. They were out front with it. And here's what the Apostle John's goal was, was to convince those reading the Gospel that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He makes no bones about that. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 20, around verse 31, he gives a purpose statement. And he says he wants you to know that, the readers to know that, so they can place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved for all eternity. And so John doesn't cover up that agenda, nor does John cover up that agenda in John chapter 1. He says that Jesus was the eternal Son of God who came down, in verse 14, he says, to dwell in human flesh. And so my goal today is to convince you of that very same truth. Because what we're saying is that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, and our church must be convinced of that, but also our lives should reflect that. 
another thing that should be reflective is in how we structure our church service. It's all built on Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. So as we consider the future of this church, understand the future of this church and the foundation of this church is Jesus Christ. So I want you, if you will, to take your eyes down to verse uh, 57 or verse uh, 58. I'm sorry, verse 59. Notice it says here, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In verse 59, it tells us that Jesus is in the middle of a conversation with the Jews. Uh, They become so angry that they pick up stones and they're going to throw them at him. Now, some of you may have a visualization in your mind, like you have a stray cat or a stray dog that comes into your yard and, and you pick up a stone and you try to run them out with no intention unless you're me with a cat, uh, no intention of actually hurting those animals, okay? You're just throwing them there to run them out. When the Jews picked up stones to, uh, to throw at Jesus, they had every intention of killing Jesus with those stones. As a matter of fact, there's another time in John's gospel where we see that woman who's caught in adultery and the Jews do the very same thing. They pick up stones to throw at her, to kill her. Now, understand this is an Old Testament practice that if someone's doing something worthy of the death penalty, that's how they kill them. The crowds take up the stones and they throw at him. So the question is, in the course of these three verses that we read, what did Jesus do that was worthy of the death penalty? Well, in verse 56, Jesus says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Uh, We might say that Jesus said something that seems absurd here, right? Uh, Jesus is saying someone who existed 2,000 years before him was thinking about the day when Jesus would come. And, And we can say that's an absurd statement, but it's not necessarily worthy of the death penalty. Now, Jesus says something else, if you see there in verse Uh, 57, the Jews say to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. So they're kind of acknowledging the absurdity of this statement that Jesus is making. And, And then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, this could be Jesus saying that he existed before the time of Abraham, and that could be what was causing the offense. But I want to tell you, that may be worthy of their mocking and their laughter, but it wasn't worthy of the death penalty. Rather, the death penalty that they want to execute Jesus or or, or put toward Jesus is based upon that one phrase, two words, I am. And let me tell you what Jesus is saying in this. And I'm just going to cut uh, to the chase here. Uh, Jesus is telling them in this text of Scripture that he is God. That's what Jesus is saying. You say, did did Jesus ever claim to be God? Right here in John chapter 8, Jesus did claim to be God. And you say, how do you know that he's claiming to be God? He just simply said, I am. And then they pick up stones to stone him. Would you turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 3? That's the second book of your Old Testament, Genesis and then Exodus. Go to Exodus chapter 3. And I want to tell you a conversation that's going on here in Exodus chapter 3. You may remember this, but God is going to commission uh, in the Old Testament Moses to go and stand before the most powerful man on earth at that time. His title was that of the Pharaoh. 
and you remember there's this conversation that goes on and it happens all the way through chapter 4 is that Moses does not feel that he should be the one standing before Pharaoh because Moses has a little bit of a confidence issue. He, he maybe has a stuttering problem or maybe he, he's not clear in his speech. And so God says in that text of scripture, don't worry about it. I'm going to send your, uh, your brother-in-law with you, Aaron, and Aaron's going to stand there with you and speak on your behalf. Well, this is some of the conversation that's going on in verse 11. If you'll notice, who am I that I should stand or or should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? The reason that he's going to stand before this powerful man is Egypt is keeping God's people in slavery at that time. And it's Moses that's going to act as the mouthpiece to stand before them and say, you're going to release them from their captivity. But that's not in verse or chapter 3, what Moses is actually worried about here. Here's what Moses is worried about. Moses is worried about standing before the people of Israel and them asking a question. Who sent you? Simple question. Well, God sent me. Well, what's his name? And this is where we pick up in verse 14. God said to Moses, when that question is asked, when they say, who is this God that sent you? God said to Moses, notice here in all capital letters, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now back up to John chapter 8. Why did they pick up stones to stone Jesus? Not because he made some ludicrous statement, but because Jesus Christ claimed to be God in the flesh. That's why they're not laughing. That's why they're furious and ready to put him to death. So here's my question to you this morning. And we're going to explore this today. Because as we talk about building our church on the foundation of Jesus Christ, did Jesus Christ, outside of this text of Scripture, ever claim to be God? Well, I want to tell you something uh, of an opinion from a person who says that he never did that. He's an academic uh, who writes on the popular level. He's interviewed on television all the time. His name's Bart Ehrman. And and I want to tell you about something about Bart Ehrman, okay, as an academic. My father, when I was about 17 years old, 18 years old, and I was going out and getting in fights every weekend, my father gave me a warning. And he said, there's someone that you're going to meet out there. There's always, you remember this, young men? There's always someone, let's say it together, tougher than you. If you have a good dad and you're one of those people who like to fight, they're going to come to you at some point and say, hey, you got to remember there's someone always tougher than you. When I talk about Bart Ehrman, don't think that I'm talking to you today about an academic lightweight. Bart Ehrman can hold his own. He's an expert in the biblical languages. As a matter of fact, he, he studied under the, one of the greatest linguists in our day and age. He studied under a man named Metzger, and he can hold his own when it comes to academics. And I want you to hear what Bart Ehrman says, because when you hear it, it can kind of shake your faith a little bit. He says, you do find Jesus calling himself God in the gospel of John or the last gospel." Jesus says things like, before Abraham was, I am, and I and the Father are one. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. These are all statements you find, listen to what he says, only in the Gospel of John. 
And that's striking because we have earlier gospels and we have the writings of Paul. And in none of them is there ever any indication that Jesus said such things. Now, understand what Bart Ehrman's saying. Jesus did say he's God in John's gospel, but guess what? You can't trust the gospel of John. You can't trust what John's writing. And and so this is his argument. We can look at the gospel of John and say it's written a little bit later. It's different than all the other gospels. And so thus we conclude that Jesus never really said that he was God in the flesh. But I want to read to you from an apologist who writes something that contradicts this, or should we say is in contrast to this. This is from a man, if you've ever read the book Evidence That Demands a Verdict, it's from a man named Josh McDowell. Listen to what Josh McDowell says. Jesus' claims to deity are by no means restricted to the Gospel of John. While John's Gospel bears a unique style in comparison with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, also known as the Synoptic Gospels, its depiction of the divine Son of God is not exclusive. So here's Josh McDowell saying the exact opposite of Bart Ehrman. There are times that Jesus calls himself God in the flesh. Now, does he do this directly in the other Gospels? Not necessarily, but he certainly does it indirectly. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to go through some of those instances in what he says, and we're going to build the case that Jesus Christ is absolutely the Son of God, the eternal Son of God dwelling in human flesh. And then we're going to talk about at the end of this, what do we do with that truth, okay? So let's walk through these. First and foremost, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And here's the first thing that I want you to see Jesus saying. Jesus is saying that he's going to oversee the day of judgment. Now, every one of you here, that maybe you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here and you have a a family member that you feel is overly judgmental. And I can promise you, or you've had this conversation with someone at work, that you've been in the course of the conversation, a course of conversation with those people, and here's what you tell them. It happens all the time. You'll say, there's only one person who can judge me. You've had this, if you've had this conversation, raise your hand. Okay, some of you are going to be honest and say that. There's only one person that can judge me, and who is that person that can judge you? Only God can judge me. Well, I want you to notice what Jesus says here in chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is talking certainly about the eternal kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Now, this is where you need to pay attention. Many will say to me, to Jesus, on that day. Jesus is not talking here about election day. He's not talking about Groundhog Day. He's not talking about President's Day. The on that day that he's speaking of here is the day of judgment. And Jesus says, I'm going to be standing there, and there's going to be a lot of people in front of me. And on that day, the day of judgment, many are going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Verse 23. Most terrifying words in the New Testament. Hear me this morning. These are not words you ever want to hear. And then I, Jesus Christ, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
Now, is Jesus directly saying there that he's God? No. But is he saying that he's there doing something that only God can do? 100% yes. Now, there are scholars that are ignorant enough to say that Jesus Christ at this point is starting to lose his mind. He's starting to make statements like this that are bold statements about judging the world and things of that nature. And so here's what they tell us. Take all the earlier teachings of Jesus and apply them to their life, uh, to our lives. But when it gets to this stuff, just kind of discount what Jesus says. But here's the reality, brothers and sisters. This is Jesus saying that he has the authority to do only what God can do. And that is to judge. Uh, Mark chapter 2. If you'll just turn to your right a few pages. Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Now, this is another thing that belongs exclusively to God, and that is the ability to forgive sins. 2, 5 through 7. Notice, it says, Jesus seeing their faith. These are the men, if you don't know the, the, the scripture here or the context of the scripture, these are the men who dug through the roof. They had a friend who was paralyzed. And they dug through the roof and they lowered him down on the mat. And it says, as they were digging through that, Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I want to stop right here and ask you a question. If you know anything about this story, why did these men bring their friend to Jesus? They brought their friend to Jesus because they knew that Jesus Christ could heal his body. Although paralyzed, although having no movement in his body, they had confidence that Jesus Christ could heal that man and that he could walk again. But when Jesus sees their faith, here's what he says. Your sins are forgiven. And here's the reality. Jesus sees beyond what you and I see. You see, we think the physical is the most important thing. Jesus says that the spiritual is the most important thing. Now, Jesus does go ahead and heal this man in verse uh, 7 or or verse 8. But notice what happens in verse 6 and verse 7 due to the fact that Jesus said he had the ability to forgive sins. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So go back to the statement that Bart Ehrman made. That statement I read earlier. Does Jesus claim to be God in the other Gospels? Yes. Although he may not state it in the same way that he does in John's Gospels, he certainly says that he is God. Now, there's one other place that I want you to turn. And that's Hebrews chapter, uh, I say one other place. You're going to go to about 20 other places. But for right now, I want you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, this is another thing that we learn about Jesus, is that Jesus is without sin. Jesus is without sin. There is no person in this room, unless they are a chronic liar, who can ever say they're without sin. And I told the earlier service, I had a man stand in front of me one day who had the audacity to tell me that he never sinned. And do you know what I told him? I said, you do struggle with one sin. And you know what the sin was? You're a liar. (laughs) 415, notice it says Jesus is our great high priest, and he can sympathize with our weaknesses. But he's one who has been tempted as a high priest in all things that we are. Notice this, yet without 
sin. Jesus Christ himself claims to be without sin in Matthew chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. He claims to be without sin in John chapter 8, verse 29. He claims to be without sin in John chapter 8, verse 46. Jesus makes that claim, but the apostles also make that claim. That Jesus Christ is the only one who has ever lived without sin. Now, this is one of the ones that I want you to hear uh, that, that is so important when we talk about Jesus claiming to be God, is that Jesus Christ was willing to receive worship from other people. And, and let me read this text of Scripture, and then we'll explore this for just a moment. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, th this is a section of Scripture we call the temptation of Christ. It says, Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus says there's only one who can receive worship, there's only one who can receive service, and that is God. Nobody else can. And I don't know if you've ever read your Bible, some of you are reading through the Bible in a year, Peter has people try to worship him, and he says, don't do that, I'm only a man. John has people try to worship him. He says, don't do that, I'm only a man. Paul and Apollos have people try to worship them. And Paul and Apollos, what do they say when people try to worship them? Don't do that, we're men just like you. But what about Jesus Christ, who says the only person who can receive worship is God alone? So if you'll turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 14 and put your finger on verse 33. This is an instance of Jesus with a willingness to receive worship. Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. Jesus, you remember here, walks on the water. And verse 33 says, those who were in the boat, don't miss this, please underline it in your Bible. Those who were in the boat with him worshiped him. Do you remember what Jesus said in, in Matthew's gospel? Don't worship anyone but God. And the men in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Did you know there's no break in the text in the next verse that says Jesus stood up and said, By no means are you to worship me. It just simply says they crossed over and they went to the other side. What is this indicating to us? Jesus believes that he is God in the flesh. Alistair McGrath is another apologist. He says within the Jewish context in the, first Christian, uh, in the first Christian era, they operated that God and God alone was to be worshipped. Yet the early Christian church worshipped Christ as God, a practice which is clearly reflected even in the New Testament. So you, you talk about us at Easter or us at Christmas, we're worshiping Christ. And he says, that didn't start just in church history. It's actually been going on since the time of the New Testament. Now, here's the last thing that I want you to see about Jesus Christ claiming to be God without claiming to be God, is that Christ is the creator of all things. At least the Bible's claiming that for him. John chapter 1, verse 3, listen to what it says here. All things came into being by him and apart from him, meaning Jesus Christ. Nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians 1, 16. For by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him 
and for him. And then Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the, for, to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. What is that telling us? That Jesus Christ is doing what only God can do. So here's a question that I want to end with today. What do we do with the truth that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh? What do we do as our future selves with that information? Let me give you three things that you need to do with that information this morning. Number one, you need to believe in Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus. If you're here and you haven't done that, today is the day. He is God in the flesh. You need to believe in Jesus. And I want to tell you what this does not mean before I tell you what it does mean. This is much more than having an intellectual knowledge that Jesus Christ existed. And here's what I mean by that. Bart Ehrman, who says Jesus never claimed to be God, also debates people and calls them fools who do not believe in the historical existence of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I've pulled some of Bart Ehrman's books and used those to convince people that Jesus was a historical figure. Because Bart Ehrman says there is indisputable, undisputable evidence that Jesus Christ existed in the first century context. So it's much more than just that intellectual belief. This is more than believing that Jesus was an extraordinary figure in the past. That we say he's had some kind of impact in history. This is more than saying that Jesus had good teachings and I should adhere to them to the best of my ability. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to put your full faith in who he is. The eternal son of God and the savior of the world and also in what he did. Hear me. Jesus Christ lived the life you could not live. He's the only one to ever live without sin. And that's what we're saying we believe. Jesus Christ died the death that you and I deserve to die. He stood on the cross in our place. You and I deserve that punishment. And yet Jesus is the one who took that. Not only did he die, but he raised from the grave on the third day. And he offers us reconciliation with the creator of the universe. That's what it means to believe in Christ is to say... God, apart from you, I can do nothing. I bring all of my faith and all of my trust, and I put it in Jesus. But let me give you a second thing we need to do with this information that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. We need to build on Jesus. Not only do we believe in Jesus, but we build on Jesus. And I want to tell you something about the hardwiring of your brain, okay? And I know this because I'm the same exact way. The hardwiring of our brain is we say, yes, I understand that Jesus stood in my place and I need to place my faith and trust in him. And if I don't, I'm separated from God for all eternity. Most of us, if we grew up in evangelical churches, understand that. But after that, do you know what we believe? Now life becomes a big checklist of do's and don'ts that I need to do in order to please God. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says it's an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's where all of those things that we are to do are birthed out of. Let me give you two scriptures and then I'm going to have you turn, if you want to go ahead and start turning there, to the book of Colossians. 
But two scriptures I want you to put in your memory. John 15, 5. Jesus says there in that text, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Folks, hear me this morning. Jesus Christ says we can do nothing of spiritual value apart from him. That's why we build on him. But let me tell you another uh, verse that's in contrast to that. Philippians 4.13. How many of you could say that from memory this morning? Philippians 4.13 says this. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing, John 15, 5, Philippians 4, 13. But in Christ, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So what does this have to do with Colossians? Well, in Colossians, you have a group of people who are being led astray to stop building their life on Christ. To start doing rules and regulations and Old Testament ceremonies and all the things that come with the, with the list of do's and don'ts. But I want you to notice here... In Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, what it says. Therefore, we've been talking about Christ for chapter and a half. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, receiving Christ Jesus the Lord would be talking about your point of salvation. The point that you said yes to Jesus Christ. So, here's what you do with that information. So, walk in Him. So you've received Jesus Christ, and do we stop there and start doing a list of do's and don'ts? No. Paul says we walk in him. That means we live in Christ. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Now, if you'll go over to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Therefore... If you've been raised up with Christ, what do we do with that? We've been raised up with Christ. We've trusted him and God's raised us as these young people were raised from Christ today in baptism. And Millie, I put you in that category of young people, okay? God bless you too, Millie. Millie and I are good friends now. Notice it says, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is seated. Brothers and sisters, it's not a one-time deal and, and a contract with Christ and then go live your life. It's building your life and your existence on Him. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now this is what I want you to see in verse 4. Look at verse 4, everybody. When Christ, notice this phrase, who is our life. You remember what Jesus said in that in that parable about uh, fruit, vines, branches, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Why? Because these are life. How many of you here this morning think about Jesus as, that's my life, that's my existence. Apart from him, I can do nothing. If I don't get up in the morning, I can't even move forward without him. That's the kind of desperation that we need in Christ, is we believe in Christ, but then we build on Christ. We build our lives on Christ. I want to read to you from a very powerful book by a man named Brian Chappell who talks about this very thing. He says, the church has a mission. God calls us to minister the gospel. Our worship should be an intentional expression of this biblical purpose. Love for Christ compels us always to consider how we may represent the gospel so as to bring the most glory to God and good to his people. Now listen to this. 
He says this gospel is not only directed toward evangelism or foreign missions. The message of God's provision of grace is as vitally is as vital for daily Christian living as it is for conversion. Without assurance of grace, we despair in our sin. Without reminder of grace, we depend on our own strength. Without rejoicing in grace, we presume the merit of our performance. Unless we make the communication of the gospel the frame and focus of our worship, our ceremonies possess only a form of godliness without the power. What is he saying? Build on Christ. Our worship services, if you've ever been here, and I pray to the best of my ability, yes, do we have things that God calls us to do? Yes. But it grows out of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus says, abide in me, and the fruit will come as a result of that. Now, the last thing is this, and I want you to turn to John chapter 1, and then we're going to close in prayer. Bring others to Christ. So we're going to believe in Jesus, we're going to build on Jesus, and then we're going to bring others to Jesus. John chapter 1, starting in verse 35, if you can get your your text over there, your Bible over there. If you have your phone, open it up. This is so powerful because this is the calling of every single believer who's ever existed, who's ever believed in Jesus. It says again, this is verse 35, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and he said, behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now listen to this, verse 40. One of the two that heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his... Uh, he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, found Philip and, and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found the one to whom the Old Testament prophets prophesied. Can you see the sequence of events here? John believes in Jesus and tells other people to follow Jesus. And one of those men was Andrew. And Andrew goes and says, what? He goes to his brother and he says, you have to see, we found him. And he brings him to Jesus. And then you have another man who sees and hears and he says, now you have to come and see and hear about the one the prophets were proclaiming. What is this? Believe in Jesus, build your life on Jesus, and bring others to Jesus. If you say, do we have a mission statement as a church? That's it. Believe Jesus. Build your life on Jesus and bring other people to Jesus. Did you know that's what we witnessed here today in this baptism? Here's the amazing thing about this church, and I don't say it just about our church, I can say it about other churches is the parents talk to their kids about Jesus Christ. And their friends talk to them about Jesus Christ. I don't know how many conversations I've had with Millie that she's been having conversations with, with Sarah, with Shelly, about those very things. And I think, makes my job easy as a pastor. 
Because what are they doing? They're building their life on Jesus and they're bringing other people along with them. Brothers and sisters, have you believed in Christ? Have you put your full faith and trust in him? Are you building your life on Christ? Ask yourself that question. Not a list of do's and don'ts. Not a checklist that you check off every day. Are you building your life on Christ? Daily dependence on him. And are you bringing other people to Christ? Would you stand with me this morning? If you're a guest with us here today, we don't do a long, fancy invitation. That's just not us. But here's what we do. We invite any of you who have any questions about what it means to be a follower of Christ to come and find us. And we'll tell you how to build your life on Christ. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we're so thankful for this day. Lord, I'm thankful for Jesus, who's your son, your eternal son, came dwelling in human flesh. Lord, that throughout the Bible, he tells us to believe in him, to place all of our faith and trust in him. And Lord, then the apostles tell us to build our life on him. And so, Lord, we, we want to do that. We, we want to avoid getting caught up into legalism and get, getting caught up into to rules rather than relationship. But Father, then we want to be faithful to bring others. Just as Andrew brought his and Nathaniel brought his, God, that we would bring others to Christ Jesus. And Lord, that we would see that replicated over and over and over in the generations to come. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The following message is brought to you by Cashin First Baptist Church in Cashin, Oklahoma. For more information about our church, please visit cashinfbc.org.